0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And this is the first episode of The Field Guides. We want to welcome you. What we're going to try to do today and over the course of many future episodes is to give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. Each episode, we will pick a different nature topic, and we'll head out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we found out about that topic. And that's why on this beautiful September morning... We are at Hunter's Creek Park. This is a county park, and we're located about 15 miles southeast of Buffalo to give everyone an idea of where we are. Uh, This park's about 600 acres, and we're trying to find the trail. (laughs) Sorry, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) This is mostly second-growth forest here, but we're actually not gonna be heading into the woods very much. Because what's our topic this week, Steve? Oh, we're going to be talking
1: about solidago, and it's a hot day, and we have to stay in the sun, which, <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: And for those who are, are not familiar with uh, Latin, what is solidago? Oh, it's uh, the goldenrods. Sorry. <laughs> Specifically, yeah, we, we, we do
1: want to talk about the goldenrod uh, galls. Um, That's right. We, we actually previously uh, thought of just doing solidago in general, and uh it is just way too much to to fit into a nice short <laughs> episode of a podcast. We would be here for a week,
0: I think, or <laughs> or more. Or more. <laughs> so, today we're going to be focused on goldenrod galls, so that's why we're going to be sticking to mostly the meadows here mm-hmm. at uh, at Hunters Creek. So, just to give you an idea of of the area around us what it looks like. Uh we've just left behind the parking lot and we've entered an area uh with some shrubs. There's some dogwood shrubs around us right now. Uh, goldenrod meadow is kind of interspersed in between the shrubs and then the forest starts, oh, probably a hundred yards um, away in most directions. So we're in kind of an open area and this is really where we're gonna stick today.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and we're probably gonna stick to this slightly shadier area where the goldenrods really start to peter out cause they're not all that shade tolerant, but we still get a good number of them and every now and then, you know, the sun breaks through. Um, and so we we'll actually have a bit of luck here, which is pretty nice. While I was
0: waiting for you to get here, I was thinking, you know...
1: Whoa, oh, way to throw me under the bus for being late. <laughs> <laughs> We're less than, what, two minutes into the podcast and you're already uh,
0: calling me out. Well, I thought I'd slip that in. <laughs> but, Everyone knows but... that I'm tardy. <laughs> All right, so how about I say, uh, when I got here early <laughs> Yeah. and uh, was just kind of hiking around, I was trying to figure out a way to let people know, you know, we chose Goldenrod because it's Appropriate for this time of year, uh, you know, when you see the goldenrod start to come out in early August, it's just that's the sign that summer's starting to wind down, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have some species that pop up in July and they go till about November, but it's definitely different from from uh,
0: you know from plant to plant. Right, but right now we're we're stepping off trail. We're heading into a, a, a meadow that's really dominated by goldenrod here. Uh, just a small meadow, but they're about geez up to our.
1: Yeah, four feet more, uh, yeah, four and a half up to our feet. Uh,
0: our shoulders, really. Yeah, and like this right now, around us right now, we see the yellow of the golden rods, we see the purple of the asters. Like this, to me, says it's end of August, beginning of September. Yeah, when you the, see a landscape like this,
1: that nice golden color that the golden rods named That's for. Right. All right, so
0: what do you start with?
1: Um, well, uh, we could start by trying to find a gall and then we could we could identify the species i think that it's on i think that would be a nice nice introduction all
0: right what about right now we can t- tell people about the different guides that we use because we said we were going to talk about that a little bit
1: when it comes to golden rods, uh, I'm not really one-sided on the issue. I actually like to use both Newcomb's guide and uh, and Peterson's guide to wildflowers. I uh, agree. To the east. But that's a specific case. <laughs> I, I generally prefer Newcomb's. Uh, it's, it's sort of nice. They use like a dichotomous key. If it has this quality, go to this page. And if it has this quality, go to this page. And
0: it really, it's a good way to get to know the plants. By structure. Yeah, by structure, morphologically. Yeah. So uh, Peterson's is, is how a lot of people start out because the Peterson guide is separated by color. Yes. So if you see a yellow flower, you know, I can flip to the yellow section and start flipping through it. Whereas Newcombs takes a more structured approach. And I think if you want to take on wildflower ID as more than just something you do a couple times a year, Newcombs is the way to go. Yeah. Because once you start to notice, does it have five petals, does it have four petals, uh, ID becomes a lot quicker and a lot easier. Mm -hmm. In some cases. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and so I guess um, as long as we're talking about goldenrods now, Um, They are part of the aster family. It's the biggest dicot um, family of plants. When you work with asters enough, you start to notice that um, everything that's considered a flower on on an aster is actually just this dense cluster of of these modified flowers. And we don't need to get into why, you know, what modifications they are. It has something to do with the sepals and every single flower head on on an aster is really many, many flowers. And that's, that's true with solidago, where solidago already looks like it has small little clusters of flowers within each of those small clusters are even more small clusters, That's which, right. uh, and it's, it's so cool to, you know, if you're someone who likes to hike and you don't have a hand lens already, bring a hand lens with you. Every time you go hiking, it's, uh, I, I don't really leave uh, my house without one. Actually, um, I, I keep them all in my car, so <laughs> I always have them ready to go. Uh, and a few different magnifications, 10, 20. Right. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned that the, um, or the Solidago, the Golden Rounds are members of the composite family. Whenever I start teaching people about wildflowers, we talked about we talk about the wildflower families, how many of them share characteristics. Um, but when you think of the composite family, think of a daisy. I think that's one of the best examples because that the name the composite, and we should mention that a lot of people just don't refer to it as the composite family anymore. Yes, they refer to it as the aster family. Yeah, it
1: was it was once called composite, which right. doesn't even follow the right structure to, to the way we think about families today. We, <laughs> right. we think the ACE is, right. is the way we usually end. Like, this is the aster ACE. right? And then, you know, um, rose ACE for the rose family. But then Caposite, which, composite, which
0: doesn't really work. Yeah, and it doesn't work. It's not used anymore. It's a little bit aged. In a lot of books, you'll see one or the other or both used. Yes. So, yeah. But the, the daisy, I think, is a great example because it was called composite, at least as far as I know, because... Flowers in this family, the flower heads are often composed of many flowers. So, in the daisy, that disc uh, in the middle, the yellow disc that most people know, that's actually a bunch of uh, small flowers called the disc flowers. Mm-hmm. And then the petals on the outside, the white, what people think of petals, those are ray flowers. Mm-hmm. And we have the same thing here on the goldenrod. So, if you look really closely at one of the goldenrod flowers, right, you're going to see the disc flowers in the middle and then ray flowers. Uh, ringing the outside of that. Yeah, though not all species have the ray flowers. I agree. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But most of the ones we're going to run into here. Yes. So yep. So should, we should tell people, like, how many species. and.
1: Oh, yeah. Bill and I live in New York, and in New York we have 29 species, and there's two hybrids that happen. I guess there's there's probably more hybrids, but they're, they're hard to document. And right.
0: Where we are right now, 21 or 19 species. In western the, New York. In western New York. But across North America, there's about 100 species. And I did look it up yesterday that about 50 of those, a little more than 50, are east of the Mississippi. Okay. Oh, really? I thought it was more
1: than that. I I, I
0: said I'd seen 90 or 80 or 90. You said 80. That kind of stuck in my head. I said, oh, I thought it was lower than that. So I checked. Now, I should say, I'm going off of one source. Yeah. Uh, It is John Eastman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... Uh, he's a great guy, but uh, I've never met him. I, he's a great writer, I should say. I, I really enjoy his, his, his books. Folks, you'll hear us mention John Eastman a lot. He writes a, a series of um, nature books that we use a lot for reference and as resources. So uh, that was one source, so I should say. That was only one source. Yeah, I think John Eastman is an incredible jumping off point. When I was doing
1: research for this, I actually found one of the references that he references. He doesn't do like a work cited, but I was able to find one of the papers that he must have been talking about because it it said the exact same uh,
0: conclusions that he ended (laughs) up mentioning in in his chapter about goldenrods. All right. So we we should mention too that uh, when you're looking up goldenrods in wildflower guides, now in the... Newcomb's Guide, they have near the back a section for goldenrods. But do they have that in Petersons?
1: Yeah. Yeah, they do? Well, so uh, the end of the yellow flower section okay. is, I think it
0: ends on goldenrods, if uh, I can remember right. Because I know in, in Newcomb's, they create a separate section for goldenrods, and then that's followed by a separate section for asters. Mm-hmm. So when you hit a goldenrod, and you can usually tell that it's a goldenrod, but since there's so many species in our area, um, that it has its own section. Yeah, so. and there's nothing else really like it. So, right. Yeah. yeah. All right, so we have some goldenrod in front of us here. Do uh, we want to identify this one here?
1: Yeah, well, um, we could talk about what, um, what's the best way to start breaking the goldenrods into different groups or the best way of sort of
0: eliminating, um, you know, one species or another. Right. And that's uh, that's really what wildflower ID is. It's a process of elimination, figuring out what it's not to get to what it is.
1: Yeah. And oftentimes, um, you know, you're always going to get some of this phenotypic plasticity <laughs> where the plant, you know, Great based term. yeah, based on the condition that the plant's growing in, like if it's up on a mountain, it's going to be different than if it's, you know, down at sea level. If it's, right. if it's in wet soils, it's going to be different than dry soils. I mean, depending on what it's tolerant of, um, you know, I guess if it wasn't tolerant, it wouldn't be growing there at all. <laughs> so the field guide is going to show you what... Maybe the average plant looks like, right. and and so you have to sort of take it with a grain of salt, and sort of you know just the more you do it, the more you sort of understand that the plants do
0: change a bit, and, and you it's know. not going to look exactly like it is in the field guide. Yeah, I used to work at a nature center, and people would often call with um, bird ID questions, mm-hmm. and they'd say, oh, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this, and I'd say, oh you know, you're looking at a a white-throated sparrow. And they would say, well, no, but it has a little bit of, you know, it has a dot of white on, you know, this (laughs) wing. And and I would always say, well, they don't look exactly like they do in the field bed all the time. That
1: reminds me when I worked at a car wash, and no one ever asked me anything about plants or birds (laughs) or anything. So
0: that's sort of the same, or not? Sort of the same. Okay.
1: Well, we both had jobs at least. So
0: (laughs) that's the similarity, I guess. All right, so this goldenrod we're looking at, First thing you would look at is the flower head, right? Yes. That's what I look at first. Yes. Okay. They sort of
1: come in one of five different varieties of, of shapes. Okay. The ones that we're looking at right now, they're the club-shaped. The, uh, or Is it also, do they call them showy as well? The club shape. So. Yeah, club. I said club. You mean plume, right? I meant plume. Yeah. jeez. Yeah, I was waiting for you to correct well, that. there's a mistake. <laughs> That'll make it in, though. Um, so, So we have the
0: plume-shaped or the showy. And I think this is yeah. when most people think of goldenrod. This is what they think of. Mm -hmm. So, a long stem, lots of leaves, and then kind of a a big, showy plume of yellow flowers up at the top.
1: Bill and I earlier were talking about the etymology for just the common name goldenrod. And when you think of that, it um, it actually more references another um, type of flowering shape, which is the wand like or club like. That's more of a a rod shaped. And so, we have the the wand like, the club like, the plume like. The plume like. Mm -hmm. There's the flat topped.
0: Right. And the last is the elm branched. With the elm branched, if you don't know what an elm shape is like, uh, an elm tree, when it grows up, it grows up tall and straight, and then it branches out on both sides. It's almost like a a shot of water coming up and then spreading out like from a fountain. Yes. Uh, So if you're thinking of an uh, elm formation of goldenrod flowers, it would come up and then kind of branch out in either direction and then droop down a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Google I don't know, like maple tree, and then Google Elm Tree mm-hmm. and just look at the differences in the in the tree shape and it's it's actually really cool. And oh, yeah. um, and there is there is a thing where you can actually identify trees from a distance. Sure. And Bill and I were talking about it yesterday that um, th- there is this Monty Python sketch that's making fun of identifying trees at a distance. Yeah. But with some trees but, you can do it. But with some that. trees you can absolutely yeah. do it. And uh, seen...
0: elm, elm trees are, you know, I bet that's one of them. Oh, I've sure. never I've never done it from a mile away. I no, usually roadside, but because elms have been knocked out by Dutch Elm. Disease, obviously, But a lot of them around here have survived because they were planted in the middle of fields as shade trees for livestock because they grow up and branch out. So they have a nice ring of, of oh. uh, shade under them. So when you're driving past fields and way out in the middle, there's a tree with that very distinctive shape. You're like, oh, that's an Elm.
1: Nice. So Because there's very
0: little else that has that. But in the, the Peterson guide to trees and shrubs, I don't know if you've ever seen in the beginning, He has a whole bunch of tree silhouettes.
1: Yes, it's the, the, yeah, the silhouettes of all the trees, and I think that is super cool. That's
0: identifying by shape. Okay, back to, back to goldenrods. Now, I do want to mention that when I was doing my research, the, kind of the groupings of how to identify them, the ones that I came across were slightly different from yours, okay? So, if we have, you know, people that are listening that know about goldenrods, and they say, oh, uh that's not how i group the golden rods i think we should say there may be people that group them slightly differently depending on your source but this is one way to do it Mm -hmm. all right and if you have your own specific way of grouping it you're probably better at identifying (laughs)
1: golden rods than most people that's true but but then again it's always nice to uh to hear other people's
0: ways to categorize because maybe it's a better one than yours exactly because like the one better than you the one that i had (laughs) the one that i had that the golden rods where the flowers were in the leaf axles yes as a, a kind of a different group mm-hmm. but i think the way that, that you mentioned is fine so we have the plume like the wand like where you have flowers kind of going up and down the stem right mm-hmm. the club like where you have more of a rounded cluster at the top the elm branched mm-hmm. flat topped yeah all right so those are the five and this one that we're looking at right now is definitely a plume yes of, of flowers up at the top it's beautiful it is beautiful although it's some
1: lovely. of the flowers are already going i mean they're they're done they're already starting to go to seed
0: yeah yeah definitely all right, so the next thing, would you agree that the next thing you look at is the leaves?
1: Yeah, I specifically would go to the leaves next, and, and the venation is a really, really good character to look at. Right. Um, you're either going to get this parallel venation, um, or uh, what do they call it? The um... Feather. Oh, no, I was thinking, what's the other word for parallel venation that you'll see in field guides? Oh. I know it's in the Peterson's Guide. Okay, I didn't bring my Peterson's Guide. It's in my backpack. All right. <laughs> That's okay. It's NERVED. Yeah, <laughs> we, we had to stop and, and, and just take a look in the Peterson's Guide. I did not they, know they that. They show it in the Peterson's Guide, so I figure, you know, it's worth mentioning. All right.
0: Yeah. Okay. So these are, I'll use that term, NERVED. Okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have what looks like three, I mean, there's a main vein going down the middle of the leaf, and then there's two smaller veins. Mm-hmm. They're uh, still very distinct. They are distinct, yeah. And these leaves are long, slender, and toothed. Would you agree? Yes. All right. So when you look at the leaves going up and down the stem, how they change in size, that can also help you figure it out. And these guys, although most of these leaves have disappeared. Yeah, bad example. I know every, <laughs> no one can see this, but the leaves are just, they're sinassed. <laughs> totally crinkly and brown uh, down near the bottom. But uh, I'm pretty sure I know what this species is. So mm-hmm. I can pretend that these leaves would have been the same size almost yes. all the way up. And when you're, when you're IDing wildflowers, it, it is good also. Not to just use your uh, your eyes, feel the plant because this guy here, yeah. the leaves are rough on the underside, a little bit rough, not super rough. Oh yeah, a little, a little bit. bit though. Okay, and this is where it can get tricky because I'm feeling the the stem right now. What do you think, Steve? I'm not going to say anything.
1: There is this this very very thin layer of incredibly short hairs. Right. That's uh, that's what I'm seeing.
0: This is where ID can get tricky. So I'm I just brought out my field guide now. According to my Newcomb's guide, if we have Um, A large cluster of flowers, plume-shaped flowers at the top, toothed leaves that have three veins. And what we're looking at is either late goldenrod, tall goldenrod, or Canada goldenrod. Now, with late goldenrod, it says main stem is smooth, usually covered with a whitish bloom. With tall goldenrod, the main stem is grayish-downy, and then Canada goldenrod main stem smooth near the base. Now, I would not say this is all totally smooth, would you? No. Would you say it's smooth near the base?
1: Way down here it's smooth. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's actually, it's it's slippery smooth at the bottom. Right. Which is pretty nice. I think we can take out late goldenrod because it also says the leaves are sharply toothed. They are toothed, but yeah. not extremely. So I would either go with tall goldenrod or Canada goldenrod. What do you think? If you want to figure it out, one of the ways to do it is actually to measure the
1: individual flowers. Canada goldenrod has very, very small flowers, an eighth of an inch long. So I'm going to do
0: that. Steve's gonna get me a flower, an individual flower. Okay. And if you have a good wildflower guide, it's gonna have a ruler in it. The nuclear's yep. obviously. And does. this
1: one's a bit longer. This is actually a quarter of an inch. A quarter of an inch. So that's way bigger than Canada. Tall goldenrod says about three sixteenths. Yeah. Okay. And this is this is three six. Well, it was a quarter for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're always gonna get some variation. That's
0: probably just the, the average. So yeah. what we have here, the flower length goes with tall goldenrod. But that the stem being smooth near the base that goes with Canada goldenrod. What do we think? Uh, I,
1: I don't know I I think reproductive parts trump everything else. But that's just me. That's that's how speciation happens is sure. sexually right. Oh. So that's <laughs> so this could sound like I'm a completely ignorant plant identifier. But um, I don't know. I think I would imagine that flowers would be the biggest thing to go for. But who knows how much variation is within the sure. Solidago sure. Uh, genus? So
0: for many years, tall goldenrod, Solidago altissima and then Canada goldenrod which is Solidago canadensis they were treated as separate species mm-hmm. but in recent taxonomic history tall goldenrod is really now accepted just as a variety of Canada goldenrod yeah uh, because yeah. they are so close but i mean one reason i'm kind of being difficult here with you <laughs> is i do want to show people that um, it can be difficult. Yeah. You know, even we've spent a lot of time IDing goldenrods and, and flowers in general. mm mm-hmm. um, But it, it can often be hard to get right down to be one hundred percent sure. Yeah. What it is and what it's not. Because um, I agree with if I was out here by myself and if I had my field journal and I was going to write down what I saw, I would say, oh, those flowers. Well, they're definitely bigger than an eighth of an inch. Yeah. So I would go with tall goldenrod. And I'm also sort of comparing it to other things I'm seeing. Yeah. This
1: individual plant, this one's I think short for the ones that are around it. I'm seeing a few that are a bit taller. Sure. And one of them's five and a half, maybe six feet tall. Sure. And I think that falls outside the range of, of Canada. Canada. Yeah. Cause... But it, but it still is in with the range of tall goldenrod. Right. And that's you got to watch out for that because if it weren't for these taller ones, you know, it would be that much harder to figure out. Sure. I think so. Sure. And I that's... think
0: I'm I'm leaning towards tall, the tall variety of the Canada goldenrod. I would um, agree. Yeah. And that's another thing. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, we're talking about leaves. We're talking about fl- um, flowers to help you identify it, the shape of the flower head. But you got to look at other things too. Where is it growing? What's the habitat? Good field guides will list that. How tall does it get? Yeah. All right. And it says in here that tall goldenrod, what we're thinking this is, is two to seven feet high. Mm-hmm. Whereas Canada goldenrod only gets to about five feet high. Yeah. And that's a lot of overlap. That's four feet of overlap. Right. <laughs> so. But if it's over mm-hmm. five feet, and you have some other marks that are pointing towards the other species, yeah. then I'm pretty comfortable calling this Solidago altissima, tall goldenrod. For yep. This one. And and I know we were
1: supposed to talk about galls, um, and this is the tiniest little gall that I've ever seen. So what is a gall? Okay. <clears throat> so a gall is something that's created when I would say like an insect, usually a wasp, but there can be caterpillars and. And other insect, they usually inject their egg into the stem of the plant or into the leaf of a plant.
0: Um, or they yeah. lay their egg on the plant and then the yeah. larva works its way in. Yep.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a growth on the plant that, that sort of is a result of that. We can get into that later. Why, why a gall might form, but.
0: You can find them on trees. You can find them on herbaceous plants, mm-hmm.
1: uh, oaks. I, I wonder, are they more commensalistic where they, they benefit the insect, but they don't really hurt the tree or, or the plant? I don't know. I think it's, it's got to be different from species to species. I would cause, think so. Because if a, if a tree is just losing one leaf, that's probably not a significant loss. And so the tree is probably not faring any worse for the gall. But, um, but something like a goldenrod, we know just from the research that there is some decrease in,
0: in productivity. That's whether right. Whether it be seed production or growth. or So goldenrods have a number of galls. Um, there's three main ones that I think we're going to talk about today. Yep. But um, it, through our research, like you just said we discovered that um, the, kind of the one big gall that most people are familiar with on goldenrods, the goldenrod ball gall, mm-hmm. uh, that does cause a decrease in productivity. There's um, fewer flowers. Uh, the seeds produced by those flowers uh, germinate less successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something I was surprised to learn. I'd always thought that the gall really didn't um, harm the plant in any way. But like you said, it's, it's not a huge detriment to the plant.
1: Yeah, and it's not just the ball gall. It's it's right. the, the second type of gall as well, the elliptical yeah. gall. It right. also has that same effect where you're going to have a, a decrease in seed, a decrease in stem height. Current rhizomes... And rhizomes are underground.
0: Yes. Yeah, food-storing stems.
1: Are affected. But new rhizomes, new growth, the number of, of rhizomes that grow after the gall is created, that's not affected. That was, that was I think, one of the more
0: interesting findings yeah. that I had from one of the papers that I had read. Hmm. Now, this gall we're seeing here... Um, this is a small one. Do you think this is a ball gall? I think it's a ball gall, and
1: it's it's not a good example.
0: <laughs> Probably about two-thirds up the way the stem of the golden rod we just identified, the, what we think it might be the tall goldenrod. there's a, a small ball uh, in the stem. So the stem comes up, then there's the ball, and then the stem continues to the, the flower head. This one, we're thinking it's a ball gall. It is round, but it's much smaller than we're used to seeing. The ball galls yeah. are typically, what, about an inch across? Yeah, about uh, an inch. Around an inch across. Yeah. This one is more like quarter or half an inch
1: yeah they're usually halfway up the stem and if there's more than one ball gall on a plant it's usually a little
0: higher than than um the second one will be a bit higher on the plant a bit yeah. higher and it's yeah. usually a bit smaller too mm-hmm. all right so let's talk about how the the ball gall is formed do you want to do that you want me to do that no go ahead all right so it's caused by a fly oh geez <laughs> yeah you're rosta you knew what kind of fly it was. It was like a... to fritted fly. And it's, it's basically a fruit fly, right? Yes. Okay. fritted fruit fly, yeah. Okay. So the the scientific name is Eurosta de Um I, I like s- the
1: solodoginus in there, the, the <laughs> reference to soldego.
0: Oh, uh- that's right. I thought you were going to say reference to Guinness, but <laughs> I thought you were going to make a You're joke. You're drinking a Guinness <laughs> right now. This is insane. <laughs> All right. So in the spring, uh, a female fly will lay its eggs on the apical leaf bud. So the, the leaf bud up at the top of the plant as it's growing. So it'll be a young goldenrod plant. There won't be any flowers yet. Uh, and that egg will hatch and the larva will burrow into the, the leaf bud. And as the plant continues to grow, the larval insect the larval fly will just start to eat and it looks like a it's going to make it sound bad but it sounds it looks like a maggot wouldn't you agree yes it's yeah. white it's small mm-hmm. uh, like less than a quarter inch usually they're edible <laughs> i think i think the majority of insect uh, larva so. is is edible that's right we're just yeah. uh prudes about eating insects yeah, here in I, north america well
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean not to not to reveal too much all at once but but bill's a vegan so he wouldn't <laughs> eat one anyway unless he for some reason absolutely needed to absolutely he survive. Needed to survive right and um, and then I'm a vegetarian, All right. maybe we shouldn't get into that. <laughs> now,
0: now that half people stopped listening. Yeah. <laughs> we try not to be preachy, right? Yeah. Okay. So the uh, the little young insect, he'll be living inside that stem, chewing, eating, and this ball will develop around it. And that's one thing most researchers don't quite understand is how it gets the plant to do this. They think maybe it mimics a growth hormone, but they're not sure. Oh, I uh, know it. Yeah, um, so actually
1: back in 2002, there was a paper that came out that actually sort of um, gives some good insight into that. Okay. Plant growth hormones are one of my favorite topics in, in um, plant physiology. I think they're incredible. They have a lot to do with um, growth of you know shoots and roots, uh, sometimes very specific things like development of a seed or maybe even the development of the pollen tube when the plant's pollinated. One plant hormone that's really um, important um, for plant growth is cytokinins okay. um, and auxin as well, um, and what they found was that this this specific uh, tefritted fly or the goldenrod, uh, goldenrod ball gall yeah. fly, fly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it actually um, it synthesizes its own uh, cytokinins, and there's about four cytokinins that are found within this larva. Originally, back in the '70s, there was a paper released, and they actually thought that the the larva was accumulating um, these cytokinins from um, digesting plant material. That's that's what they thought it was. But it turned out that this newer study in 2002 um, reveals that no, they're actually synthesizing it themselves. And and it was a really cool study. Uh, we'll we'll link to it, you know, in the description of, of the podcast. But it's so they they believe that the cytokinins actually being synthesized, and that hormone activates in the plant and it forces this growth that creates the goal.
0: Okay. So there we go. Thank you.
1: Oh, I love, oh, we should just do a whole thing (laughs) on hormones. I love plant hormones. They're so cool. Like, oh, for like witches, witches brooms. (laughs) Oh yeah. Witches brooms. That's, that's all, uh, that's all just a manipulation of the regulatory system for hormones. The first time
0: I I saw one was in I think it was in a spruce tree. Yeah. And, uh, for those who don't know, a, a witch's broom is when you have this abnormal growth of branches um, or any plant structure really, I guess, but in the tree, it just looked so weird. It was yeah. just this weird bunch of, uh, branches growing up and down and sideways. And, uh, it looked wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's super weird to see, but what that is, is oxen sort of regulates that growth, whether it's a fungus or insect or bacteria, whatever causes the, the witch's broom, it actually just messes with that control system and then cytokinins sort of flood in and that creates a lot of this lateral growth and that's sort of how you get this witch's broom. And it's sort of a
0: similar thing with the the goldenrod galls. So once the the gall is developing, the larva actually stays in there for the rest of the spring through the summer. And as the goldenrod continues to grow, the, the gall remains there. And that gall will stay into the fall through the winter. But what happens is at the end of the summertime, actually right around now, so late August, early September, that larva will bore a tunnel right to the edge of the plant and it'll just leave a thin layer of plant material and then it'll go back into that central chamber inside the ball and then it will um, enter winter diapause and it'll stay in that gall throughout the winter time unless what might remove the larva from inside the gall. It's likely to be a
1: woodpecker or a chickadee and and um yeah, they, they'll just peck at it, and right. put a hole right through it, and, and sort of devour the little guy. And so. squirrels
0: too, right? Squirrels as well, I yeah, guess, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. But that makes sense. That would be a, it's kind of an obvious visual cue for a bird when they see that goldenrod with that ball, they say, ooh, there's yeah. a little snack inside Ooh, there. a little so, lunchbox. <laughs> yeah, so you can find these during the winter, you know, in, in fields of uh, dead goldenrod. Uh, the, the galls will have turned brown, um, but if you crack them open, uh, you can use a knife very carefully crack them open, uh, you can find the larva inside. Of still, course, yeah, still w- alive. Of and Of course, when you do that, then that larva is going to die. <laughs> yes. But- so you <laughs> better eat them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let it go to waste or else put it in your bird feeder. It stays in there all winter, hopefully, if it doesn't get eaten. And then in the springtime, what it'll do is crawl back out the tunnel it made in the fall. It anchors itself near that thin layer of plant material left behind, and then there's a structure on its head that it fills with fluid. And this structure expands like a balloon until it pops through that skin. And then the the fly can emerge and find a mate and then start the process all over again. So and how long does it have to find a mate? Uh, usually takes about two weeks. Yeah. So if you think about it, for 50 weeks out of the year, more or less, it is living inside that gall. And then it's only outside that gall for... A couple of weeks at most and hopefully it can find a mate lay eggs and, and then it's gonna die so you don't see it on, until it's an adult really yes so I've never seen an egg uh, I've never seen a larva except in the ball gall so yep. we mentioned that birds eat them so if you find these guys in this if you find the galls in the spring if there's a tiny hole if it's just a millimeter or two millimeters wide that's one that successfully emerged Mm-hmm. Um, but if you find a larger hole, then that's probably a chickadee or a woodpecker. I've heard people say woodpecker holes are bigger, chickadee holes are smaller, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know measurements or anything. <laughs> there is a whole uh, microecology that's that's developed around the ball gall, and parasites are part of that, so why don't you talk about the parasites?
1: No, we specifically looked at what they looked like, because it would be so
0: cool to actually see <laughs> I <know>. one. Um, <laughs> that would be the best possible thing to happen. Yeah. But um... In some of my research, I saw that there are inquilines and those are organisms typically insects that live inside the gall along with the fly but then there's also parasites that will destroy the fly uh, as part of their life cycle. So
1: the first uh, goldenrod
0: ball gall parasitoid that I wanted to talk about was the Uritoma
1: gigantea. That's a species of wasp and they inject their egg right into the gall and that developing wasp just ends up eating the fly larvae. Then it feeds on the inner uh, tissue of the gall and that is something that they can only do early in the season. Actually, even as early as late July, a lot of galls have already hardened to the point where the wasps can't penetrate it anymore.
0: That would make sense.
1: Yeah, and so that's true with uh, the tall golden Rod, Canada goldenrod and uh, what's Gigantia?
0: Gigantia is late goldenrod.
1: Oh, and, and yeah, so I guess and late goldenrod. Yeah. And then there's another wasp in the same genus, but it's a bit different. It's Eurytoma obtusiventris. And that's an all-female species, um, so they're parthenogenic. What does that mean, parthenogenic? So it's just this asexual reproduction. You only need the females of the species. It actually oviposits directly into the fly egg. In late summer, after the gall is produced, the wasp hatches, eat the fly larvae, and then it gets out. And that actually only happens in Altissima, which is tall goldenrod, and canadensis, which is the Canada Mm -hmm. goldenrod. Which, same species, I guess. Um, And the last one's actually uh, the tumbling flower beetle, and it actually lays the eggs on the outside of the gall. This is, for some reason, I have this incredible vision in my head of this happening, where the eggs hatch, and then they all just, like, bore in all (laughs) at once. (laughs) Um,
0: That one seems like the most (laughs) vicious to me, for some reason. And and why is it that, you know, you have a fly that's basically using this plant and is is harming it in some way, but I don't know, like, I'm getting into, you know, touchy-feely area here, but, like, I like the goldenrod golf fly. It seems like nice and, and benign. And then you think of these parasites and I'm just like, oh, they're like the bad guys. And I don't know why I think that way. Do you yeah. think that way? No, absolutely not. I mean, I can, I guess I can see where that comes
1: from, yeah. but you know, maybe it's the wasp that's the good guy. Yeah. I don't know, like it's just at the very to, least. She's just
0: trying to find a home for her baby. Right?
1: At the very least it's all neutral. And I'm one of those guys that believes that like morality is there's a biological basis to morality. And, sure. and, and so it's, you know, morality is gonna be different from species to species right. and we can't if you're a we shouldn't wasp, be
0: putting our morality on these guys,
1: exactly right? and if you're a wasp you have a completely separate wasp morality that you go by they wouldn't even i would just call it a, a survival strategy right. and so and whatever is good for the survival of the species that's what's moral for that species right. which sometimes that stuff can get out of hand um, especially when they're non-natives and, and, and especially if they're invasive um but um you know it's not their fault and <laughs> and we definitely can't project our human uh, quote-unquote morals on them right so.
0: So what else about uh, the parasites?
1: Um, well, that's actually it for the ball gall. Um, it, we, could, we could actually kind of look for another gall if we want. Okay. Uh, now, Unless you have something. Do you have something more about I do the have
0: something else because the species of fly, I mentioned this to you yesterday off mic, but this process of creating the goldenrod gall ball, sorry, the goldenrod ball gall, Yes. they typically just stick, the species of fly just stick to tall goldenrod in the mid-Atlantic states. So if you're down in Virginia or Washington, D.C., something like that, they're, you're only going to find the ball galls on tall goldenrod. So that's Solidago altissima. Mm-hmm. But in the Northeast and the Great Plains, you're also going to find them on Solidago gigantea, the late goldenrod. And what researchers are discovering is that since the insects that are using tall goldenrod, they come out 10 to 14 days later, mm-hmm. that they're actually becoming their own species.
1: Oh, nice. So this
0: is an example of uh, sympatric speciation, which... Is the uh, more rare kind of speciation. Because yeah,
1: usually it's allopatric, where there right. actually, there is a, allo means different uh, sim means same and patrick is like place or location so right. same place and yet they're still um, diversifying which so, is
0: really cool right so typically when we think of speciation we think well there's some kind of geographic barrier mm-hmm. uh, you know like the glaciers came down separated um this populations of birds to east and west and they developed into separate species mm-hmm. but with these guys with sympatric speciation they're in the same place yeah and you know for a long time i don't know if you know this for a long time um uh, some evolutionists didn't believe that sympatric speciation was possible like there was a a certain movement saying yeah we're not really sure that's possible there's something else going on here but we're finding more and more evidence of it and this is a definite sign so they're not as as far as i could tell from the research because it's it's pretty dense stuff um they're not a separate species yet but they're heading in that direction
1: they're only separated by time and not space Not space so i mean if you think
0: about it the the flies that are coming out of the tall goldenrod, they're emerging from their gall, they're finding a mate, they're laying eggs and dying, and then the next group is coming out mm-hmm. of the other species of goldenrod, so they don't they don't run into each other, even if they're in the same field. One last thing I wanted to mention about um, the, the goldenrod gall is that since it is uh, species-specific as far as goldenrod is, if you're trying to, to, to ID a goldenrod and there's a, a ball gall on it, it's instantly narrowed down to just... A few species. It's either going to be the Canada goldenrod, uh, the tall goldenrod, or the late goldenrod. Mm-hmm. That's it.
1: And before we move on from the ball gall, I kind of want to just bring up this quick study that I found. It, it was um, actually it just came out this year in the, in the American Midland Naturalist. What it did was it compared this um, trierhubata beetle. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the goldenrod. Yeah. They, they wanted to know does, does this beetle's leaf herbivory on, um, on tall goldenrod affect the success rate of the goldenrod fly, the eurostra species that we had mentioned earlier. For the treatments, they just had different levels of herbivory, so so maybe a different number of insects in each plot. And so what they found was that an increase in the trier leaf herbivory, it correlated with a decrease in the successful gall formation. So there was this inverse relationship and so they do impact uh, Eurosta's um, uh, success rate, which I think is really cool. And we've, we've actually seen these, um, Trier habada. I'm so be- This is actually such a hard That is a hard pronounced. one. T R I R H A B D A. That's so weird. Trier habda. Trier habda. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm definitely saying it wrong. But I think that's, a, that's super
0: interesting. And uh, did you have something about that? There's a, a species of tree hopper that feeds on the sap of the goldenrod, and it exudes honeydew. So all the excess sugar that it gets from the sap, it exudes that, and ants nearby will use that. Now, the crazy thing is these are are formica ants, and the adult treehopper will lay its eggs on goldenrod that's near ant nests. So it'll look for the mounded hills of the the formica ant, recognize that, and then choose goldenrods around there to lay its eggs on. So the ants will, be attracted to the, the honeydew that the tree hoppers, the larvae are excreting, and then they will actually protect those guys. The, they'll tend them, they'll farm them. Mm-hmm. And then when these beetles come around, uh, the ants will chase them away uh, because they're competing with, with the larvae. And what the, the one study that I was looking at, what it found is that when there's an overabundance, you know, kind of an invasion of these beetles, the trier-habda beetle, hobda <laughs> <trier-habda>, beetle, <yeah. laughs> the Trier-Hobda beetle, that... You will get complete defoliation on uh, goldenrod plants, except for the stems where the ants are taking care of the treehopper larva. Uh, so they'll be basically keeping the, the beetles completely off those stems. Those stems will have leaves and flowers, and the rest of the plant will be defoliated.
1: I love that so much. <laughs> and and
0: we had talked about
1: this before, and I've actually seen this happen. I haven't seen the defoliation, but I've seen this, this mutualism between the, the, the formica ants, which... You don't want to mess with an ant. I mean, <laughs> if you've ever been bit by an ant, I mean, they're they're named for formic acid, yeah. and and that's a that's a stinging, burning uh, sensation. That's right. Um, and I'm sure it's even worse for things that are smaller
0: than us. Do you know? Do you know birds will use them? Yes. Yeah. To to yeah. preen with, or yeah, they yeah. rub them through their feathers uh, because the acid will kill parasites and other little beasties. Oh, so cool. They want to get rid of yeah. I, I I've heard that um, crows or ravens do it a whole lot, and yeah. not not every bird
1: species, right? Right. right. no, No. Yeah. No.
0: As far as I know, not every bird species.
1: Yeah. And and so I've seen this and we'll actually, I'll definitely post a picture because I have this incredible picture where, and out of all the pictures I took of this going on and down in my cabin in Delavan, um, only one picture, uh, you actually see the the ball of honeydew at the tip of the tail. And then, and then there's an ant really close to it. And then the next picture... The ball is gone, no more honeydew, and the ant's closer, like it's, its head is right by where the honeydew used to be. And it's just an incredible uh, series of two pictures that I took, and I was so lucky that I got it. Because, you know, they're so small, you don't really know what you're getting when you're taking the picture, sure. and then I'm
0: recropping, and I see this incredible thing I just captured. So. And when I was reading about this, you know, I, I immediately was wondering, does this happen around here? And then I saw that the study I was looking at was from from Ithaca, mm-hmm. which is in central New York. And then when I mentioned it to you, you mentioned, "Oh yeah, I just saw this happen." So and I showed you the pictures last yeah. night.
1: They're so cool looking Very too. They're cool.
0: spiky, black and yellow. Uh oh, Yeah. So I got to awesome. be on the lookout for it now, because man, I've spent years looking at goldenrod and I've never seen that happen before. All right. Well, do you want to find one of these elliptical yeah. galls? We'll try to find one of the other galls. Yeah. All right. So. Oh
1: yeah, either one, I guess.
0: Yeah. All right, Steve. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you think goldenrod's duck?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is going to be a pun. Like it's uh, a. <laughs>
0: Some weird uh, duck joke or no, something. No duck jokes, no duck jokes. Okay. Uh, there was a study in 2010 that proved that goldenrods actually do duck. <laughs> so they do this. What's uh, the journal, first of all? Because <laughs> uh, uh, It's the American Journal of Botany. Wow, okay, I suddenly yeah. like it all. So, so it, it is a, an actual journal. Uh, and what they found is that in the springtime, in order to avoid being—if you want to say infected—but in order to avoid the goldenrod gall fly um, laying its egg, some Canada goldenrod individuals in a population, the stems will nod, and they call these candy cane stems. That's how they refer to them. Yeah, it's a good—it's um, a good visual. Yeah. So, and they actually had in the study—they had a picture of a goldenrod gallfly fly, you know, that was looking for a spot to lay eggs, sitting on top of a goldenrod plant that was bent over. And the, that apical bud, that top bud it was looking for, was just a few centimeters away, but it wasn't laying the egg there because it's it just looks for it right on top of the plant. Mm-hmm. So well, maybe maybe there's some cues about the plant not being healthy
1: because the gall only forms with the nutrient allocation. True. So yeah. maybe, it, I mean, it's tough to interpret the, the results of studies, right. but it could be, you know, a few things.
0: So they found that, this seemed to be like a, the second in a series, and, and they said that uh, they found out that these candy cane stems, they have a lower infection rate. I don't know if infection is the right word. I think it's fine. Yeah. yeah so uh, they're never used by the goldenrod invasions. golf invasions yeah. <laughs> Invasions. Yeah. So they wanted to find out, okay, well, is that because they're nodding? Or is it because of something else? Is something else going on? Is there some like chemical defense where the nodding is uh, an effect of that? Mm-hmm. Um, so what they did is they found that these nodding stems, um, the plants of that genotype, that if they're in heavy shade in early spring they will straighten out. So what they did is they looked at a whole bunch of individuals, some that nod in full sun, the ones that were in shade that would have nodded but straightened out. And what they found that if they nodded and then straightened, the goldenrod gallfly fly still went to them. They think it's directly tied to that nodding effect. So they do duck to avoid uh, the goldenrod gallfly. fly. They said that what they wanna find out in future studies is that if this is a successful strategy, to avoid having a gall mm-hmm. grow on you, then why don't these individuals take over a population of, of goldenrod? Because they said in most Canada goldenrod populations, there's a small amount of the this genotype where they nod, yeah. but they never take over. They never become the most abundant um, yeah. genotype. It, it could be an adaptation that that um, ends up, uh, for some reason, decreasing seed yield. Yeah. Or, um, and, you know, like yeah. we said earlier in the podcast, is um, research seemed to indicate that galls do have a detrimental effect but it doesn't seem to be a huge yeah detrimental th- there's effect. just a slight decrease in yeah, certain things and yeah and if
1: it's a if it's a recessive trait then maybe you know unless everything's wiped out except for those plants with yeah. the recessive trait <laughs> then uh you, you never know it'd you be interesting know. to look into more maybe yeah. we'll post something about that
0: so golden rods do duck
1: yeah cool Okay. So we just came across another gall. It's it's what they call the rosette or bunch gall. It kind of looks, it almost has a flowery look to it. Kind of like a rose, you know, sure. a rose with tons and tons of petals like that.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the big difference that you'll notice when you see it is that the ball gall is in the stem, but above the stem, you still have leaves and flowers mm-hmm. where this one, it's the, in the rose, apex. Yeah. Right, the exactly rosette is at the top because it, this one, the larva burrows into the apical bud and it, ceases all upward stem growth. So mm-hmm. it's almost like the stem stops growing, but the leaves keep growing. Yep. And all of the leaves that would have been on the stem are now coming out of this one central point. So that's why you get this bunch of leaves.
1: And that doesn't mean that the the bunch gall is going to be the top of the plant either cuz right. um, l- like like Bill said, it stops all upward growth so, on that stem. Yeah, on that stem, but you can still get the lateral stems. And right. and we've actually seen examples of it where it just it, it looks really strange. It's this huge kink suddenly and so you have the you have the the bunch gall and then out of the side of it is just a stem another, that's another kind of stem. taken over, right? Yep. On and the... and it's become the new main stem. So
0: this one is caused by the goldenrod bunch gall gnat, but in uh, some sources we've also seen it referred to as a midge. Now what's the scientific name for this one? Oh boy. So it's the
1: Ropolomaya
0: Saladaguinnis. <laughs> Alright, okay. Yeah, Ropolomaya Guinness and this one uh, in in my reading what i found out is that the the gall that it creates is a habitat for numerous other insects and that the insects that live on a certain stem of goldenrod if it has a bunch gall, there's a lot more that are going to live inside that so much so that there were two sources that referred to the goldenrod bunch gall nat as an ecosystem engineer yeah. Like a beaver. Mm-hmm. Like a, a beaver creates habitat for other uh, animals, for, for other wildlife and plants as well.
1: Yeah, it's got that bromeliad look, and I think that's
0: pretty cool. Now, I have to be honest, I did not find the exact life cycle of this guy. Did you?
1: And I did not either. <laughs>
0: okay, so we can look that up. But one thing I did find, which I thought was very cool. Have you ever heard of monogeny? No. Okay. So... The apparently the the female midge or gnat that uh, you know is the cause of this. They all of their offspring is one sex. Huh. So that's why it's monogeny, like you know, progeny. It's okay. all one. So one fly will have all males. Another fly will have all females. Holy cow! The paper that I was reading did not put forth any information as what is the benefit of this, you know, strategy of having uh, one sex offspring. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, just something interesting about uh, the, the young of the, gold, the
1: goldenrod bunch gall gnat. Unfortunately, we don't know a crazy ton about this one, and I guess there's not a lot of other information out there. I know the, the parasitoids are not even that well documented. There's a PhD project for somebody.
0: Yeah, it could be out there, but I, I don't know. What species of goldenrod does this grow on?
1: So, I don't have it.
0: An Eastman? Mm-hmm. He says you can find bunch galls on many varieties. Uh, but I actually found other sources that just, uh, say, Canada goldenrod. That's it. Oh. It's not going to grow on anything else. So. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, there's some debate about, out there about uh, what's, I wonder if which it's, species it grows. <laughs> I
1: wonder on. if it's actual scientific debate or otherwise. Right.
0: <laughs> if it's just uh, people made mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we are on the lookout now for one more gall. Yep. Uh, and that's the elliptical ball gall. Yep. All right, so...
1: And while we search for this one, we can actually, maybe we could talk about it slightly. Sure. Um,
0: so... The elliptical ball gall, just like the name suggests, it's similar in appearance to the, the ball gall that we talked about first, but it's just more elongated. It's more elliptical.
1: Yeah. It's also called the tapered ball gall. Oh, I, or, no, the tapered gall, I guess. Okay. And, and um, I don't know, kind of, I guess you could see it. You know, the ball gall is, is just a ball. This one sort of gets smaller at a slower rate. Sure. Looks like a
0: ball gall that's been stretched out.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, we're looking for this elliptical gall. I thought it would be a good idea just to quickly identify another goldenrod. You know, give give you guys some variety. So,
0: all right, so we found uh, another plume-like goldenrod. Mm-hmm. Or would you call this one elm-shaped? What do you think?
1: Oh, you know what? It's tough because sometimes the plume the plume goldenrods can can eventually get a little elm-shaped. So I would call it plume an elmy plume. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think that's a good thing to point out if if we haven't already is that. A lot of times, it can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a little uh, a test for you planned that didn't work out. When I was here earlier in the week, I found a goldenrod that I ID'd as a, a rough stem goldenrod. Uh-huh. And I looked at the flowers, I looked at the leaf, I went through my field. Guide, I'm like, okay, that's a rough stem goldenrod. And then there was a gall on it. Oh, and we don't know about a rough stemmed having a gall. It had a ball gall, and yeah. it should not have. If it's a rough stem goldenrod, that is not one of the goldenrods that the Eurosta fly uses. Mm-hmm. So either I found an extremely exceptional occurrence of the, the ball gall, or I was misidentified. Yeah. <laughs> hey.
1: I like the difference between me and you. Like, you're like, ooh, a cool teaching experience. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh. I'll mention this to Bill. Like it's <laughs> we, we have completely two different minds in that.
0: But, but what I, what but I you're an do, educator, so it makes you know a lot of sense. But I was going to show you the stem. Yeah. And like cover up the gall and say, okay, identify this, <laughs> and then have you go, oh, that's a rough stem. Because and the then leaves slowly open your hand
1: and to reveal. Like, oh!
0: <laughs> <laughs> That'd have been great. Because depending where it's growing, the growing conditions, yeah. how old it is, it can be, you know, difficult to get a hundred percent positive ID. Yep. But this one, we have a plume shape. hmm And when we look at the leaves. They're pretty much the same size all the way up and down. Yep. Uh, they get, you know, smaller quickly up at the top. But when we look at the leaf, mm-hmm. if the listeners remember, the first species we looked at, the tall goldenrod, had those parallel veins. Um, also called? Uh, don't give it to me. Uh, nope, don't got it. I don't have it either. <laughs> <laughs> we forgot it? Yeah. Oh,
1: it's something to do with actual veins or not vascular. Go- uh...
0: Oh! Oh, it's nerved. No. That's, the, <laughs> that's the word. Okay, we suck so bad. <laughs> so these are not oh.
1: nerved, right? Nope, they're feather veined, and feathered. this is the first species today that we've seen it, uh, with the feather vein. So it really has one main vein. I said veinage, <laughs> veinage. <laughs> I like that word better.
0: Veinage, veinage. <laughs> veinage. Yeah, I like. am <laughs> gonna write my own field We'll guide. put that into the uh, <laughs> look for the, the vernacular. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the other thing to notice about this guy is the leaves are very rough and as you get further down the stem to me it seems that the teeth get more pronounced Mm -hmm. as you move down the stem so you have rough leaves you have a plume like uh spray of flowers at the top but the stem is very rough okay Mm -hmm. so we have rough leaves rough stems and that roughness on the stem goes all the way up and down the stem so this is roughed stemmed goldenrod or solidago rugosa yep rugosa and, and what
1: does rugosa mean
0: all right so rugosa means we looked this up it means wrinkled mm-hmm. and the other common name for this do you remember
1: wrinkle leaf
0: wrinkle leaf yeah. goldenrod and it,
1: it so the veination's really really deeply
0: in the leaf like yes it's, yeah. especially as you go down mm-hmm. the lower leaves and this individual here doesn't even have it as much as some of the other individuals oh yeah seen here the one where... we saw yesterday was nuts. yeah it was the, cool those lower leaves they're bigger mm-hmm. a lot of teeth very hairy and then the venation's real deep
1: yeah and when we say wrinkled we don't mean like undulated or something we no. don't mean it, we mean like skin wrinkle like it looks yeah. like crow's feet on yeah. someone's face yeah. <laughs> like a...
0: it looks like yeah. someone wrinkled it up and then spread it all out again yes yeah 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 Oh, it's really cool. All right, so that's the wrinkle leaf or rough stem goldenrod. Okay, All now right. we better find
1: this uh, last elliptical. gall.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right, so we've been searching for, what, about 10 minutes? Yeah, longer than that, I think, because we, we keep having the side conversations. Right, and we cannot find the elliptical ball gall. We're, we're seeing lots of bunch galls, we're uh-huh. seeing some ball galls.
1: You know, and we we
0: saw one yesterday, but to find
1: one plant <laughs> in a, an area where there's hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of plants,
0: right um there's no way it's tough so let's talk about the elliptical ball gall yeah like we mentioned before it's similar in size to the ball gall Mm -hmm. but it's more stretched out yep a little bit longer yeah so this one is caused not by a midge not by a gnat not by a fly but by a moth and uh, the common name is just the goldenrod gall moth now do you have the scientific name there in front of you? This is a good one. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> this is one of so, the hardest ones
1: I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. So it's the Goldenrod Gall Moth Caterpillar. That wasn't too hard. No. It no. wasn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so it's going to be the Norimo Schema. Yeah. Gala... <laughs> Hold on. Everything's solid to
0: Guinness. That's right. Yeah, so Gala solid sense. to Guinness. So... so I think it's Norimo Schema, Gala solid to Guinness. I think you'd be right. And he <laughs> said it with confidence,
1: Schema. and I believe you. <laughs>
0: And uh, I did a quick check in my uh, plant name dictionary uh, in my Latin dictionary, and I could not find what Norma schema referred to. Gall a Guinness, I think, would have to mean a gall on Yeah, <laughs> Solidago yeah. solid gall. Yeah, I would <laughs> hope that's what it needs.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this guy maybe is my favorite one out of all of them because he's like, he's always in wait, you know, he's always lying (laughs) in wait. So he emerges from a gall, like this, we're going to start with the emerging, that'll be the start of his life cycle. So he emerges from the gall in August, around now, and then he'll hibernate over winter as an adult. As an adult moth. Yeah, as an adult moth. And then in spring, it lays eggs on the goldenrod stems um, and dried leaves uh, near the stem base. And then the eggs overwinter, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the larvae hatch in the spring, and then they bore into the apical bud. They tunnel downward several inches, and that's sort of, I think that's kind of interesting because that makes me think of the the elongated shape. It's not just a point of damage. They're actually making like a, an so actual vertical. they go in vertical. and go down. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then they tunnel downward several inches into the stem, and then the, the gall is created in, in midsummer. It burrows the exit channel, and then you had something about this. I thought you had mentioned oh, something. Oh, yeah,
0: that's right. So in one of the sources i read it said that before it pupates it bores a tunnel to the edge just like the ball gall fly does and it left that layer there goes back down pupates and then emerges as an adult but then there were a couple other sources that said no no they don't leave a a thin layer they bore a complete tunnel to the edge when they're a larva and then they pack that opening with plant material and silk because like most caterpillars, they can make silk. And the opening, the edge of it is beveled. So as you come out, it gets wider. So the, the source that I read said that it makes it easy for the adult moth to push it out, but for something else, to kind of dig it out, it would be a little more difficult.
1: Yeah, a um, waste
0: of calories yeah. that it might
1: not get back.
0: Yeah, so yeah. we're not sure. Um, I think the, the detail that that description went into in both of the sources I found mm-hmm i hope that me, so me said <laughs> that that is is how it uh, what it does to prepare before it pupates mm-hmm. but correct me if i'm if i'm hearing this right so it's only in the gall for the summertime i i believe that's right yeah so that's it's so crazy that it the the adult spends a whole year mm-hmm. or you know a whole winter and then the the egg sits there <laughs> yeah for another whole winter yeah for another whole winter like what's the evolutionary advantage of that you would think Geez, you're, you're giving yourself a lot of time to get eaten, or yeah. you know, for something bad to happen. Yeah,
1: I'm curious about the um, the evolutionary history on yeah. that. Like, so this uh, one seems yeah. to
0: have the longest life cycle of yeah, of yeah, because the, the gall is
1: created in midsummer, yeah. and then it, it it does that tunnel, and then
0: the larva pupates, and the adult moth emerges, and then in late summer. This brings up you mentioned websites before. We were talking about Wikipedia. Um, if websites are reliable, I did find at least a couple websites that had the length of the life cycle of the goldenrod gall moth incorrect. Oh, okay. Where it's, I uh, found one site that said that it overwinters um, inside the gall. Oh. Uh, and then I found another one that said the adult did not overwinter as an adult. Uh, so as I was doing, you know, looking at different sites, looking at books, I'm like, wait a minute, there's some discrepancy here about the life cycle. Yeah. But then I realized that the majority of what I was reading said, no, the adult overwinters, and then the egg also overwinters. I, I love finding caterpillars and moths overwintering.
1: Yeah. Have you come across it yourself? Oh, yeah. What's oh, that? Yeah. Like in
0: tree bark usually. Oh, I
1: love it. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So we at least know that happens just yeah. by anecdotal evidence, but anyone can go out in winter and find these things. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be it for the episode then.
0: Okay. So we should encourage people to get out, look for goldenrods, uh, see if you can find the different galls we talked about. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, as far as what there is to talk about with goldenrods, we have just scratched the surface. Oh yeah, this
1: is, it's its painful not to do it because uh, we had both spent so much time looking up all this stuff on goldenrods, finding all these papers, going through all the different books that we own and, and books, like I, I don't know, I've done interlibrary loans just to look at stuff with uh, for, for goldenrods and it's insane how much is out there yeah. and how much of it is so interesting. Right. Um, it's it's a really cool plant. We could probably do three or four episodes oh, at, at the least. And even then I wouldn't be satisfied yeah. like this episode's done and I'm happy about it, but I am not satisfied. I <laughs> want to talk about goldenrods, uh, you know, and it's, uh, we can do part two next year. I know. I know. Um, you know, if anyone has any suggestions, what they would want us to, to do, because, um, like we had said in the beginning, we're always going to be out in the field, whether it's winter, whether it's, you know, it's, we always want to do stuff in the field That's and there's right. always stuff to see no matter what time of year. And,
0: um, So give us some homework.
1: Yeah, yeah. So give us some homework to do. Um, We're going to try to do these uh, at the very least just once a month. We're both pretty busy guys uh, with a lot on our plates, but we really want to do this. You know, this is a really cool way to spend our free time. We'd probably be hiking together anyway. So we're going to try to give you guys one of these every month, and uh, hopefully, hopefully you guys like them.
0: All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah,
1: thank you.